If you would, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. Uh, Exodus 19, verses 1 through 15 will be our text this Lord's Day as we resume our study in the book of Exodus. As you turn there, I want to say thank you again uh, for sending me to West Africa. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity to go there with Chip McKay and a small team, and we were able to work alongside our Southern Baptist missionaries. And I'm looking forward to sharing more with you uh, about what took place there, about the ministry there, about how you can be in prayer for the ministry there. And so Chip and I will be sharing at our members meeting this month. That'll be in a few weeks on a Sunday night and hope that you can come and hear more about the work that God is doing uh, in West Africa, specifically among the Songhai people that we were working with during our time there. But again, I appreciate uh, your prayers for us while we were there and since we've returned. And I'm looking forward to resuming our study now in the book of Exodus. Uh, If you've been with us in this study, you know where we are. We've basically looked at how God... Uh, delivered his people out of their bondage and slavery in Egypt, uh, how he is now taking them on a journey to the land of promise. And if you're very familiar with Exodus, you know that a big part of that journey is going to be receiving the law from God. Now, we've talked already about how God has given some of his law to his people, but now we'll see the law in its fullness come to them there at Mount Sinai. You're probably familiar with the Ten Commandments and God giving those commandments to Moses and through Moses to the people, and he'll give other instructions And so Exodus 19 is a chapter that essentially uh, is preparing us for this law that's going to be delivered. Uh, God's people are now arriving at the the bottom there of Mount Sinai. God is going to now prepare them to hear this word from him. And as he prepares them, hopefully what you will see today in our study is that he is going to call them to holiness. And so today we're going to look at the first part of chapter 19. Uh, Next week we'll look at the second part and some more practical applications of what this looks like. Uh, But for today, foundationally, it's important for us to understand what it is God is calling his people to. So we're going to look at Exodus 19, uh, verses 1 through 15. And because this is God's holy word, out of reverence for it, if you're able to, if you would stand together as I read this text for us. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 1, this is what God's Word says to us today. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the people of the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, 
Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. And let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day, and do not go near a woman. If you would, pray with me. Father God, we ask that you might help us to better understand your word today. We live a life of distraction, and even in these moments, Lord, we can become distracted. And so we pray that your spirit might help us to focus on these words and specifically to see the gospel and the hope that rests in it, and that we might believe in that hope today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. This last week, I finished one book and nearly finished with another. Uh, one that I recommend to you is a short biography and then a focus on the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards. I've shared about Edwards before. Uh, Stephen Lawson writes a great little short book on Edwards and his resolutions. And if you remember from when I was here before, uh, Edwards was a pastor and theologian during the First Great Awakening. And, and after he became a Christian, within a year of that, uh, he wrote down 70 resolutions. Uh, between the ages of 18 and 19, he wrote these resolutions down and he held to them for his entire life. And uh, these were resolutions very different than oftentimes what we resolve at the beginning of the year to, to lose weight, to save money, to change our habits. Uh, Edward's resolutions focused entirely on his relationship with God and, and growing in, in holiness and growing in spiritual disciplines. Uh, so for example, uh, his seventh resolution was this. Resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. And so Lawson records in this book different journal entries from Edward's diary where he did that very thing each day. He would consider before he did something, if I were to see the Lord in the next hour, would I be ashamed of what I'm about to do? And so this resolve for a young man really protected him from so much sin and kept a, a very eternal focus before him. Uh, he was also very resolved when it came to his study of God's Word. Uh, his 28th resolution was this, resolved to study the Scripture so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. And so Edwards would spend on a regular basis about 13 hours a day in his study, uh, studying God's Word, praying, uh, preparing sermons. Now when you hear that number and maybe even hear some of these resolutions, that, that may seem like a lot, that may seem a bit extreme. Uh, it was helpful to me as I was finishing Edwards' book that I started another very different book, uh, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. Uh, th this is a very helpful book for believers and in fact, in the early part of the book, the author points out uh, that on average, on average now, an average person with a cell phone checks that phone 82,000 times a year. Uh, that's about once every four minutes. 
That means in the course of this sermon, depending on how long it is, you will be tempted to check your phone about eight, nine, ten times. Now, I would imagine most of us would say, oh, no, I don't check it that often because uh, we're delusional. But on the other hand, that means that somebody else is checking it a lot more often for the average to be once every four minutes. Friends, I don't think the issue is that we just don't have time to study the Word of God. The issue is that we are quite distracted today. And we have filled our time with so many other things. And so the challenge for us as believers is to recalibrate and really to resolve to use the time God has given us for His glory and to learn more of Him and more of how we can share Him with those around us. And so it's very fitting then that we come to this chapter in the Scripture. In Exodus chapter 19, we see God calling His people to holiness. We see Him preparing His people to receive the law. We see Him emphasizing to His people what we see the New Testament emphasize to us today. We read, for example, in 1 Timothy 4 that we are to train ourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And so our job, one of them as believers today, is that we might encourage one another in godliness, that we might grow in godliness, that we might better prepare ourselves, not just for this life, but for the life to come. And that's exactly what we see God doing with His people during this exodus. He has saved them out of their slavery, out of their bondage. But now there's this season of preparation where he's preparing them ultimately for the land of promise. And as I've shared before already in this study of Exodus, that's a picture, friends, of the Christian life. God has saved us and redeemed us. But there's a reason that God doesn't just snatch us to heaven the moment that we become a Christian. He has a purpose for this walk of faith, for this journey that we're on between now and when He takes us to a new heaven and a new earth, to our land of promise. He wants to do a work in our lives. And so what we see here with the Egyptians is that God was not just interested in getting His people out of Egypt, He's interested in getting Egypt out of His people. And God's not just interested in saving us from this world today, He is also interested in getting this worldliness out of us. And so today as we look at this text, I want us to think on these things. I want us to consider what it is we might need to practically do to grow in personal holiness as we prepare to better understand then the law that God is going to give. And so we'll begin our study with the first point that I've put there in your outline. Uh, This reminder from the scripture that God saves his people before giving them the law. God saves his people before giving them the law. There's great confusion in the church today when it comes to the issue of the gospel and the issue of the law. There's great confusion in the church today about how we were even saved and how works apply to our salvation and what we need to do in order to be saved or what we don't need to do in order to be saved and what our life should look like after we are saved. Well, much of this confusion comes from a misunderstanding of things like this in Exodus. A misunderstanding of what the purpose of the law was to begin with. And what we see here in Exodus 19 is a reminder from God that before giving His people the law, He had already delivered them and saved them. Now notice what we see here. In the first couple of verses of Exodus 19 there, we see the Israelites 
They arrived there at Mount Sinai and they set up camp. And immediately in verse 3, Moses climbs up to the mountain. Now Moses is going to go up this mountain at least three times, I believe, in Exodus 19. And Moses is going up this mountain in order to meet with God. Now before we get into that, it's important that we understand the context here. In our culture today, there are people who go up mountains to meet with God. There are people who go on all kinds of spiritual journeys and spiritual pilgrimages in order to meet with some guru, in order to have some spiritual experience, in order to meet with God. That is not what Moses is doing here. And Moses, as we've already seen in the book of Exodus, is the mediator. Moses is the one who goes to God on behalf of the people, and Moses speaks to the people on behalf of God. Moses is not climbing Mount Sinai in order to have some spiritual experience. He is not climbing Mount Sinai in order to meet with some spiritual guru or find some purpose in life. He is climbing Mount Sinai in order to receive a word from the Lord that he can then take and share with the people. And before God gives that word in the form of the law, he gives Moses a very important reminder. And notice what it is. Verse 4. He tells him to tell the people... You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. So before God gives any law to his people, what does he do? He reminds them here of what he has already done for them. If you've been with us in our study, you know what he did to the Egyptians. How when he went to rescue his people, first he pronounced judgment on them. And he called them to repentance. They refused to repent. So what did he do? He brought plague after plague after plague on them. He decimated their land, their crops, their livelihood. They still refused to repent, so God took the life of their firstborn. And they finally seemed to relent for a moment and let God's people go. But soon after he, they let them go, Pharaoh and his army began to chase after God's people. And so you remember what took place at the Red Sea? We often think of the Red Sea is the way God delivered his people, but it was also the way God judged wickedness, wasn't it? Because as soon as the people crossed over through the Red Sea, God brought those enemies against them, pursuing them. He confused them, bogged them down, and swallowed them up in the waters and annihilated their enemies. And so here, God reminds his people, before giving them instruction on how they were to live, he says, first and foremost, you need to remember what I've done for you. You need to remember that I have saved you. And not only that, he continues in verse 4 to say, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And that imagery is one that we'll see again in Deuteronomy 32. Moses uses it there to describe uh, the care that God offers, this, this image of being uh, born on eagles' wings. I don't know how much you know about eagles. I don't know a lot about eagles, but... Pastor Matt's fascinated with eagles, so I asked him about them and learned some good stuff from him. And he told me, he said, Richard, let me tell you more about eagles here. Uh, your, your average bird, when that, that egg hatches, it only spends about five to ten days in the nest. And then after that, you know, the, the mother bird pushes it out of the nest and it learns to fly. But with eagles, Pastor Matt told me, they will spend as many as a hundred days in that nest after they hatch. 
And when they are eventually pushed out of the nest, that mother eagle doesn't just push them off and wait to see if they fly. That mother eagle kind of hovers over them. And if that baby eagle starts to struggle even a little bit, that mother eagle will swoop down underneath and catch that little baby eagle on its wing and lift it back up and continue to teach it how to fly. That the picture here in the Scripture is of a God who doesn't just push His people out of Egypt and say, you go figure it out now. The picture here is a God who not only goes to His people in their slavery, but then goes with His people on their journey. And when they struggle, as we've already seen them struggle, with thirst, with hunger, with armies trying to defeat them, what does He do? He just swoops down underneath them, doesn't He? And He feeds them. Brings bread down from heaven he gives them water out of the side of a rock and he annihilates their enemies and so here the picture we have then that god is giving to moses and telling moses to share with the people is that he is a god who has saved his people he is a god who sustains his people and it's in this very context then that god is giving the law to his people Now, it's very important for us to remember. Because if we don't get this order straight in Exodus, and if we don't get this order straight in the gospel, then, friends, we get very confused, and we will get very frustrated. See, God did not tell His people, first, you need to obey my commands, and then I will save you. Now, imagine what that would have looked like. And Moses walked into Egypt and said to the people, Okay, guys, uh, here's what you need to do. You need to obey God perfectly. And once you do that, oh, he'll swoop in like an eagle. (laughs) Once you do that, he will save you. If Moses had done that, friends, God's people would still be in slavery in Egypt. Because what do they do? Well, what is the picture we see over and over and over again? We see the picture of people who struggle to obey God. And so it's very important that we see the order here, that the very first thing that happens is God is gracious and He saves His people, and then He calls them to obey His law. And friends, we see the same thing happen in the Christian life and in the gospel today. First, God rescues us from our sin. And then he teaches us how to live for his glory. And if you get that confused, friends, you totally misunderstand the gospel. And yet so often that is our temptation. Our temptation is to think, well, I've just got to clean myself up first. I've just got to stop doing this. I've got to start doing this. I I know this is wrong, so, so maybe if I stop this and don't do this, then, then I'll get things right with the Lord. We have this notion in our mind that somehow we're going to stand before God one day and, and He's going to weigh our good works versus our bad works. And if our good works are, are more evident than our bad works, if there's more good than bad, we'll be okay. Got this idea that we're going to see a, a movie somehow of our life. And, and so we have within us this thought that we've just got to try and we've just got to work. You think about your day. You think about when things don't go so well in any given day. You think about when things go really bad. When when the doctor's report isn't good. 
when suffering comes, when you lose the job, when you have an accident, when something happens to somebody you love, you immediately think, what can I do to fix this? How can I fix this? And especially when it comes to spiritual things and things with God, we begin to think, how can, I, how can I fix this with God and make this better with God? Obviously, I've done something wrong here, and if I do something right here, that then God will bless me. And you turn on the television and some slick-haired dude tells you, yeah, that's it. You, know? you just have enough faith. Oh, you're, you're suffering right now. Well, what you need to do is you need to plant a seed of faith with your credit card. Here's a book I've got, and it'll tell you exactly how you can have more faith. Here's a piece of cloth I've prayed over, and this is what you need. And then we walk into many Christian bookstores, and right there, top ten bestsellers. It's garbage. Somebody peddling this stuff. Telling us if we just try harder, if we just do something else. Giving us some new little scheme and formula. If, if we pray this prayer, if we do this thing, if we draw this circle. And we come back to the Scripture and we don't see any of that. God didn't go to His people in Egypt and say, okay, once you do this list of things, then I will save you. In fact, what is the composition of God's people when He saves them? Do you remember what they're doing? They're grumbling and complaining. They get more work put on them. They go to Moses. Well, thanks a lot, Moses, and thanks to your God for doing this to us. And God doesn't do what you and I would do. You and I would be tempted to go, well, take care of yourself then, buddy. No, God in His grace and His mercy, He, he saves His people. And friends, that's exactly what He does in salvation. That's why the Scripture tells us, Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates His love toward us, and then while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we were cleaning our life up. Not on the day that we finally didn't yell at the kids. Not, not on the day when we just got everything right. And while we were yet sinners, the Scripture says, Christ died for us. And then he calls us, friends, to obedience. He calls us to holiness. But oh, don't get that order confused. And we see that order even under this old covenant structure with God's people, which reminds us of the second point there in your outline. God then calls his people to obedience after he saves them. He calls them to obedience after he saves them. And so now God starts speaking of his covenant relationship with his people. In verse 5, he says, Therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you should be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so God here makes this wonderful covenant promise to his people. And yet, you see here, it's conditional. And so how does this work? On one hand, we're talking about God's the one who saves. It has nothing to do with us. And God's the covenant keeper. Remember that picture we see in Genesis when God makes the covenant with Abraham? And that day when you make a covenant, I realize this is a little different than what we do today, but 
but you would cut animals in half and make a pathway between them and the two people involved in the covenant would walk through it together and they were saying, listen, if, if you break this covenant or if I break this covenant, may it be done to us what was done to these animals. A little bit more serious than signing a piece of paper. And so that picture we have when God makes the covenant with Abraham is he tells Abraham, okay, divide up the animals, make the path, but then God is the one who goes through the path, not Abraham. God's telling Abraham, I'm the one who keeps the covenant for both of us. And so on one hand, we see God's the covenant keeper, and yet here there's this conditional covenant. And that's not good news for the Israelites. They come and hear this word, and what do they say? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. You ever heard that before? You ever heard somebody say to you, well, I'm never going to do that again. You know what you could just do next time is you could say, eh, wrong. What? What do you mean? Well, you're going to do it again, you know. Well, I don't know. I'm ne- I don't know. You don't know. I'll never do that again. I'll give you five minutes. It's our nature, friends. And it's exactly what we see with the Israelites. Here they are saying so proudly, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. Exhibit A, the golden calf. (laughs) Not long after this, God will give the law. And as God is giving the very law that the people said, all the Lord says we will do, they are getting impatient, they are getting frustrated, they are tired of waiting for Moses. And so they get a great idea. Let's melt down all the gold we have, let's make it into a golden cow, and let's worship that and dance around it. And oh yeah, all that the Lord says we will do. And and if that's not enough, you just basically take that picture and you see it over and over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament. See friends, this is where the Old Covenant falls short, isn't it? See, if we really could stand behind the words all that the Lord has spoken we will do, there would be absolutely no purpose for the cross of Jesus Christ. If we had the ability within us to perfectly obey the law, then the gospel is foolishness and unnecessary. But friends, the gospel is completely necessary, isn't it? Because you and I can't perfectly obey. I mean, Adam and Eve in the garden couldn't even obey the instruction, do not eat the fruit of this tree. You think about what Adam and Eve did. Adam didn't beat his wife. Eve didn't beat her husband. They didn't commit some atrocious thing that we would see on the front pages of the paper today. What did they do? Well, we took a piece of fruit and we bit it. Most of us today look at something like that and say, eh, you know, that's not so bad. But they broke the command of God. And because of that act of rebellion against God, They were damned. And everyone that came after them was. God is very serious about His holiness. And He's very serious about our sin. And so we don't live in a system where we can perfectly obey. Had we been there, we would have taken a bite. We would have ate the whole tree. That's our nature. 
And so we see it is a flawed system to think that we can go from that in the garden to suddenly say, oh no, 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 God, everything you say I will do. And so this points us directly to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It points us to the one who would do these things. This here in the Old Covenant is conditional. If you do these things, then this is who I'll make you. I'll make you a holy nation. I'll set you apart. You'll be a light in the darkness. And we see pictures of that throughout the Old Testament. But eventually we see every time the people in the Old Testament, they just fail at this. In fact, what we often see is they don't want to be a light to the nations. They want to be just like them. They don't want to stand out or be set apart. They want to be just like the wickedness around them. Aren't you glad that's not the case for us today? We don't struggle with that at all, do we? The church of Jesus Christ today is so set apart from the world and looks nothing like the world and and we don't wrestle at all with that temptation to do the things the world does, do we? No, we absolutely do. And so that's why we need to understand what God is saying here when He calls His people to obedience. Conditionally, they fail. But we are now in a new covenant where we are unconditionally accepted by God. Where God looks on us while we are sinners and calls us to redemptive faith. Where God looks at us when we have a dead, cold heart of stone, the Scripture says, and He gives us a heart of flesh. And now we can breathe because He has breathed life into us and now we can obey Him. You might hear that and think, well, wait a second, I'm I'm a Christian, but I'm not perfect. Friends, being a Christian is not about being perfect. It's about trusting in the one who is perfect. Being a Christian is not so you can stand before God one day and look more cleaned up than the guy beside you. (laughs) It's that you might stand before God one day and you don't say anything. Because we have an advocate. We have one who stands on our behalf and who says to his father, I purchased them with my blood. They are covered in my righteousness. Left to themselves, they can do no good thing, but they have been covered in my blood, Father. And we stand before God covered in the righteousness of Christ. We don't stand to plead our case and how good we were. There's no case to plead. Again, you might be thinking, well, you're painting a pretty negative picture here, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, I am. Anybody want to come up here and tell me everything that's gone through your mind in the last 24 hours? I don't see any hands. I'll keep talking to you, but I ain't going to tell you what's gone through my mind in the last 24 hours. I'd like to keep my job. And I'd fire me if I said it out loud. Listen, this, this world is fading. This flesh is fading. We are reminded and even haunted at times by our past. But the good news of the gospel is, is that God has rescued us from that. And He has promised us one day a new heaven and a new earth. And He makes all things new. And there'll be a day we can rejoice, brother and sister, and we can say exactly what's gone through our mind for the last 24 hours. Because it will be right. And it will be holy because of what Christ has done on our behalf. 
And so in this time in between, we have to understand that God does call us to obedience, but not conditionally in order to be accepted by Him. No, now for those who are accepted by them, He says, now, now, walk in faith. Now, grow in sanctification. Grow in holiness. That's why 1 Peter 2 sounds very familiar when you read it alongside Exodus 19. But you're a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Notice that there's no if-then there. No, God says, now that I've bought you and purchased you, now I've set you apart, now now walk in my ways and be a light in the darkness around you. See, when God saves us in this way, friends, He calls us to something more than just trying to clean ourselves up. He calls us to holiness. And that's our last point this morning, point three. God is holy, and He calls His people to be holy. And so notice here the the remaining part of our text. God says to Moses, I want you to go tell these things to these people. Verse 10, I want you to go and consecrate them and, and wash their garments. Now we'll see more of this as we go through the law, but But what it means to be consecrated, God would give them all types of purification rituals to go through. All types of things to help them see that that He was holy and they were not. And if they were going to attempt to even come near Him or be His people, they, they had to do something to purify themselves. Now again, it was a flawed system in the Old Covenant. He'd call them to make sacrifices, then He would tell them that He wasn't pleased with sacrifices. It was pointing towards the new. It was pointing towards Christ. But but what God's people are learning just in this moment at the foothills of the mountain is that God is holy. And God's the one who sets the rules. Notice what He tells Moses. He tells them to go tell the people and to go to the people, verse 12, and set limits for the people all around. So He tells them, go to the foot of this mountain and I want you to set a boundary. And then notice what He says. You tell those people if they cross that boundary, they die. In fact, he says, Moses, you guys need to kill them. You pick up a stone and you beat them to death. You pick up an arrow and you shoot it at them. Even if an animal crosses that line, you wipe it out. Go have a good day. (laughs) Well, what is that? Well, there's a lot there. But I hope what you'll see just in the broad stroke of it is this. God determines how we will approach Him. God sets the rules. We don't. And that is vitally important for us in our culture today. Because we have so many people who believe they can approach God on whatever terms they want to approach God. I don't know how many times I've heard somebody as I've invited them at church, talked to them about their faith, invited them to open up the Word, who've said to me, well, I've, I, I'm good with God. 
fact, I go on a walk every week, and when I'm out there on that trail, I can just, I can just feel God all around me. That's where I connect with God. I don't know about what the Bible says, but I've, I've got my own thing going with God. I talk to Him all the time, and He talks back to me. Talks to me through dreams. Talks to me through signs. In fact, I'll be thinking about something, and all of a sudden, God will just send me a message or send me a sign. Doesn't that sound familiar? That, that's our culture today. And even for those in our culture who, who, who feel this sense that they have sinned against God, that they need to clean themselves up, that they're trying to do it in their own efforts, in their own way. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, they sinned against God, and what did they do? Well, we'll just cover ourselves with leaves. That'll fix it, you know. Now we can come before a holy God. And what does God do? He removes them from His presence. That they didn't have the option of deciding how they would cover their sin any more than you or I do today. And so for all of us in our religious notions, well, if I just go to church enough, give enough, do these things enough, that, that'll, that'll make up for it. No, friend, God's the one who sets the terms. And the terms here to His people are helping them to see that He is holy and they are not. And friends, the same terms apply to us today. And, and so we can't just approach God in any old way or think for a second that we can purify ourselves. I read about a good example of this not long ago, and I'll close with this. Some of y'all may be familiar with the book Walking the Bible by Bruce Feeler. They made it into a PBS series. Basically what Bruce did is he... He tried to walk through the first five books of Moses. And so he, he went to where we believe Mount Sinai is today, for example. And he hiked up that mountain. And he walked in these different places that we've read about in the scriptures. And then wrote this book, Walking the Bible, about it. I found it pretty fascinating when it came to this traditional site of Mount Sinai. He goes there. And there's this, uh, I'll call him a spiritual guide there at a temple at the foothills of it, who's going to take him up this mountain. And so in his conversation with him, he starts to say, well, you know, wait a second, we're, we're walking up this mountain, and yet in the Bible, didn't God say anybody who crossed this boundary, he would just annihilate and take them out. And so here's what his spiritual guide told him. He said, oh, that's right. In the story, when the Israelites first came into contact with the mountain, they marked the whole area off. There was thunder and lightning and thick black clouds, and even the animals were not allowed to go up the mountain. And that's when they heard the sound of the trumpets, as if the mountain was on fire, and everybody was terrified. And the people said to Moses, If we go up, we will surely die, so, so you go up and speak for us. And so the author, Bruce, asked him this question. He said, well, if that's the case, then how can we justly walk up this mountain today? This is what his God told him. In ancient times, he explained, a monk would be at the top of the path and would hear a person's confession to make sure he was spiritually prepared to be at the sacred place. That's how we justify it. You come to the monastery, you purify yourself, and then you ascend. You purify yourself, 
Friends, that's, that's the culture and that's the world we live in today. You do this yourself. It's not what the gospel says. See, the gospel says we can ascend the holy hill today because Christ has purified us. Because we've been made clean by the blood of the Lamb. Because we don't need to depend every day in and out on how good we were and how hard we tried. We can cling to the hope of the gospel and the gospel alone. Friends, that is our only hope. And if you're hoping in anything else today, if you're hoping that somehow you can cover your own sin today, then heed the words of the prophet Isaiah who said this, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And heed the words of the gospel that tells us this. But if we will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. And all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then as that saved people, God calls us to walk in righteousness and to pursue holiness so as we resume our study next lord's day that's where we'll pick up with looking at what does this practically look like then to pursue holiness and for today we'll, we'll end with this i would invite you today to consider one have you responded to this offer of the gospel i'm not asking you if you've walked an aisle or been baptized or have some note hanging on your wall somewhere where somebody says you did such and such and such and such day i'm saying right now today can you stand with confidence knowing i have repented of my sin and i have placed my faith fully in christ jesus i'm not saved by my works i'm saved by his works and if you're not confident of that friend i plead with you I, I compel you, please consider the call of the gospel. The scripture says today, today is the day of salvation. Don't put that off for tomorrow you don't know if you'll have or not. And if you have made that great confession, then my invitation for you today, as well as every Lord's Day, is to reaffirm your trust in Christ in Christ alone. We as Christians are so often tempted to fall back into this old covenant thinking, fall back into this thinking, well, if I do this, God will do this. We need to trust fully in the gospel. And so wherever you are today, we invite you to respond. We invite you to pray as we have this time of response. If you'll stand together as I pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word we find hope, we find truth in it. And Lord, we need to discipline ourselves with the study of it, that we might grow in this hope and this knowledge of the truth, that we might share it with others. I pray today, Lord, just in response to these 15 verses we've looked at this Lord's Day, that, that you would do a work in us and among us. For any here, Lord, who's yet to confess Christ as Lord and repent, I pray they would. For those who have, Lord, perhaps you have reminded them today and perhaps through the Spirit you, you have showed them today of a need to repent, to confess something in their life that's not pleasing to you. Perhaps you've burdened some just to pray for others as they watch brothers and sisters struggle or suffering. And whatever it is, Lord, I pray during this time of response that we would 
come to you and, and, and that you would do a work in us and among us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.